Hello, this is Application Paranoia, Season 4, Episode 1. Hello folks and welcome again to Application Paranoia, a podcast dedicated to application security, DevSecOps and AppScan. We're back for Season 4, Rob. How are you? It's been a while. We haven't spoken since last year. Yeah, and I'm excited for season four. Uh, this is going to be a good year. We're looking forward to it. I'm really, really excited. You know, just got back from a trip with, I uh, got to take my daughter back to the University of Arizona, a uh, chance to go back there for a couple of days. And it was her first visit on a college campus as an alumni. And so that was fun to to see and experience. We got to take in some basketball games um, and Actually, a lot of them, we ended up going from Tempe to SoCal on the same day and caught games kind of on either end of that. And so um, it's neat. I've apparently raised a daughter who's every bit the sports fan that I am. So that's kind of fun. Um, But yeah, been really good. So Chris, where have you been hiding? Oh, man, it's been a great couple couple of months. It's good to be back, though. It's very good to be back. Super busy all the time. You know, doing what I do, <laughs> even in the winter. <laughs> and the, and, and it's, is the weather treating you well where you are? So far, yeah. It's only been snowy a little tiny bit this year, so kind of like what it was last year. We're getting dumped on tomorrow, but that's okay. Yeah. Wow. wow. So you so, haven't so... lost any discs in the snow, I take it? No, no. I went to Florida and proceeded to lose five. <laughs> <laughs> where I can find them all, but not there apparently. Threw them all right into water or water hazards that are out of the way or in reeds. Like, really? Oh, I came gosh. all the way well, here just to lose five discs? So I, I'm very cool. glad to hear that you did not go in the water in Florida to do that. Yeah, um, I actually heard yeah. a story yesterday. My wife was out of me. There's an 85 year old woman who uh, lives I in a Spanish lakes community in Florida that was dragged in. Yeah, so Damn. Um, yeah, the, the, the gator was going for the dog and then thought she was looked tasty or something. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah yes. It's, it's no joke. People get dragged from uh from those from what is it, the side of the walkways and stuff. A lot of the disc golf courses are right where the gators live. There have been stories about yes. them being dragged in, trying to get lost discs. They're like, well, it's in the water. I guess it's gone. <laughs> yeah. So well, yeah. And the last time I visited my was walking around and we saw there was a gator just on the side on one of the ponds. And so I got yeah, you know, to get out. up on <laughs> They're a menace. Yeah, They're yeah, everywhere. Awesome. Thank God just, the iPhones have Zoom, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, was at, I was at the OWAS conference last week in Dublin. So first yes. time a conference in my own country. So that's was kind, of, <laughs> kind, of, hey, kind of exciting for a change. Not having to sit on a airplane. Was it sponsored by Guinness? Um, no, it wasn't. No, no, it was, <laughs> but um, I'm sure Guinness was consumed by some of the attendees. You know, so. <laughs> exactly. I started a new hobby, which is all consuming. I'm just curious if anyone else does it. I, I, I started looking at my family tree. Um, oh, well, and, and I've, I've, I've I'm getting very obsessed with it. I've actually managed to take the number of family groups back to like 1700s and things like that. But it's it, it's it's also very expensive, you know, because you have mm. to download documents and stuff. But but it, it's absolutely fascinating, you know. So you know, um, I'm just curious if any of you guys have done it, been stupid enough to 
Indulge no, I haven't, I haven't done the family tree thing, but I've done the DNA testing, and apparently I hail from the world's worst monarch. <laughs> like, this dude was straight evil. <laughs> <laughs> like the 1600s, his only notoriety is that he used to kill everyone around him, including his servants and his help and his soldiers. Like, this dude was just bad news. So, well, so apparently I'm royalty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was like I think it was a Scottish, a Scottish king or something like that. But yeah, th that's not the point. The point is this dude was bad news. <laughs> but somehow his genes made it to me. <laughs> that sounds like a great business model. Just I'm gonna get everyone to send in DNA tests and they just tell them they're related yeah. to someone who's really <laughs> horrible and famous. From this bad monarch or that bad monarch, you're a pain in the arse, and here's why. <laughs> And, and there's no way you can confirm whether they're wrong. No, there's not. Like, how do you know? How do you know if they're not just making shit up? How do you know? Yeah, my dad years ago got, got into this. He was very into this whole tree and tracing and that kind of thing. And somewhere found um, that he was convinced that we were related to the inventor of Tide detergent. Right? So whoever actually That's a good one. You look for that. Um but that that person apparently, you know, it sold and somebody else took it to market or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I don't know how they discovered that, but, but like you said, it's hard to validate any of those things um, for real. So I've, I've got a long tree somewhere here in the garage where, uh, you know, it was all mapped out and everything, but no, it, it's, um, it's, it's the little secrets. So, so my, my grandfather, for example, I've, I knew he had gone to Australia in the 1920s from Scotland, um, mm. but, but you, we suddenly find out that um, not only did he go there, I found the boat that he went there on, and then I, because there's ways of tra tracking that, and I found when he arrived, and then I found that he got married in Australia, and then I found that he left and went back to Scotland on his own. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> and then got married. And then got married to who what became my grandmother oh, shortly after He's that. Been married to two people at the same time. <laughs> Looks like I got the, the lucky end of this thing, just having a bad, bad <laughs> king in my ancestry. So, 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 you know, sort of confronted by my father and a few others with it, and I go, didn't know that. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Grandfather was a philanderer. What? <laughs> No, now it did. It, it, in fairness to him, it did say on his marriage cert, and no one had seen it that he was divorced. Oh, really? He wasn't a bachelor. He was divorced. So that's what that was. What gave the clue that he might have been married before? So, wow, that's crazy. But, but it is. It's it's it, and and it's like forming a puzzle. You feel like a, a detective. You know, it's like it's 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 yeah. very, Anyway, it's obsessive. That is very I, cool, though. We'll be looking forward to more interesting ancestral fun facts. As we yeah. go oh, I have loads. <laughs> My great, great, great grandfather used to live in America. Then he moved to Australia. Then, uh, then back to Scotland. And that's how it all happened. Yes. Like, oh, yes. back in the day, it wasn't just a plane ride. It was like a month-long journey over who knows what kind of waters. Nice. Yes, yeah, we'll be looking good. forward to the Twitter polls of, of who do you think Colin is related to? Yeah. <laughs> Which king is in his history? Is it a good king or a bad king? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or is it Don King? Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. No, that would be <laughs> A duke, an earl, a baron, who knows? Yes. Genghis Khan, maybe. <laughs> 
Does your family have a crest, Colin? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah hey. Look, we could, we could spend ages on it. Um, so, uh, for another day, yeah. for another for topic. Another I mean, there's like so. Um, so the Scottish ancestry is very, very interesting because at, at a certain point in Scottish history, that made to take English names. Mm. So even though I have a surname Bell, the family name would be Macmillan. Um, and that would have been forced upon a, wow. a certain family at a certain time by, you know, the, the, the fierce people that came from the south of the island of Britain, you know, <laughs> Those, whoever they may have been. <laughs> Those English yeah, people. Is that one of those situations where they changed the name to hide that they were Scottish kind of thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was very common. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of that. But but then that 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 gets sort of passed on. So people, yeah. What there's, a wild time a to be alive! If you ask me, having to change your name just to live, <laughs> just to survive, just so you don't get hunted for sport or whatever happened back then, craziness. Well, I don't yeah. know. It's I, I don't think it's so much that it's it's so that you can you know um, you know thrive in the village and be able to sell your wares and do all oh, the yeah. things that you want to do yeah yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> live, live live on live on a certain piece of land you know so, yeah Hunt it yeah. Sport, on the north yeah, part of the island <laughs> <laughs> the island, yeah. the island. <laughs> welcome welcome so as you all met this morning, HCL Software is one of our sponsors, but they're also one of our speakers, right? So Rob, we're very excited because uh, they also host a podcast and they are here to kind of share a little bit of their knowledge with a couple of interesting folks. We've got James Grennan, founder of Renaissance Software Consulting, um, DBA Wingman Software. Uh, we got Ralph, uh, David Ralph, director of software Engineering from Alview Systems. Welcome, welcome. We got Colin Bell, AppScan CTO, HCL Software as well. And uh, Rob, I'll leave it all to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Hey, we are very excited about this. And just uh, full transparency, this is the first time we're doing a live podcast, so this should be really fun. Um, as uh, Regina mentioned, we do run a podcast called Application Paranoia, where we talk about all kinds of things related to Agile and DevOps and DevSecOps and a whole bunch of other fun things along the way. So um, we're going to start. Colin, want to yeah. say hello? Hello. Uh, nice, nice to be here. Um, for those who don't know me, I've, I've, I'm the CTO for AppScan. I've, I'm, I live in Ireland, so I've come a long way for this. I'm here for two days, and I fly back to Ireland tomorrow night. Our podcast started during the pandemic. Um, we're very proud of it. We during the pandemic, we were actually recording an episode every two days, every two two weeks, I should say. It was. It seemed like every two days. It felt like every two days. Um, but but the the real focus that we have, you know, we say it's a podcast about application security and DevSecOps, and and it's a real principle thing is that it's not just about security, even though it started from a security space. Um, we're very much interested in knowing, um, talking to thought leaders. That's that's what we, we we focus a lot on. We get a lot of people on our show um, who are leading experts on on certain topics. 
but we have a lot of fun as well. Um, so if you haven't seen the podcast, check it out. It's called Application Paranoia. Um, so my background is application security. Um, Rob, Rob's part of my team. So Rob, maybe introduce yourself. And Yep. I spend most of my time doing thought leadership and looking to connect the dots between development organizations and security teams and trying to bring value to that space. Um, just out of curiosity, were any of you here in 2020 for the Agile event there? Um, kind of in the Garden Center. Okay, so that's where we first met Rick, and uh, we've actually had Rick on our podcast. So he was in our last season talking about transformation. So that's kind of what birthed uh, this discussion today. So um, it was an awesome event. Thank you. Yes. So David, do you want to say hi? Sure. Thank you, uh, David Ralph. I am a resident here in Miami, so I didn't have to travel, but uh, a few miles in the car. And uh, I'm director of software engineering for all of you out of. Uh, Coral Gables, Florida here. Um, I've been a technology, I was an engineer for many years and then moved into uh, leadership and then when I understood Agile, embraced it fully, um, big proponent and um, I graduated from this university so little awesome. props cool. to uh, FIU. Very cool. Now do I have this right that Lane Kiffin was a co-chair before Ole Miss? Right? I'm sorry? Lane Kiffin, right? Uh, at at FIU? That was probably after I left. After you left. Well, yeah, it would have been just a few years ago. Okay. No, this, this is going more recent. Um, awesome. So, and your biggest threat, obviously, is the traffic here in Miami in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Very well versed in that traffic. Yeah, I imagine so. Well, and James, you want to say hi. And I know you are iconic in this space, right? You go back to the original time of the manifesto, right? Well, I, I go back before then. Well, actually, uh, you, you yourself. Uh, yes. <laughs> I did happen to go skiing that one fateful uh, weekend in uh, Snowbird with friends of mine, and the Agile Manifesto came from that. Very cool. But, uh, normally, I spend my time in embedded systems, and I'm an XP Extreme Pro. You're going to hear more about this because I think the questions are going to lead me right down to get to talk about the stuff I like to talk about, uh, which are the, is the technical side of Agile, and are there any technical people in the room? <laughs> okay, I see two. Okay, this is one of our problems. Okay. Um, but, uh, so I help uh, embedded systems engineers learn uh, agile engineering practices, test-driven development in particular. Very cool. Very cool. Well, so I'm excited about this conversation and you guys in particular because I think, you know, looking, looking at us, right, uh, we've been around this place for a little while and have done a bunch of things in here. So we've heard agile for a long time. One of the things I'm curious about is do you think that there are major innovations or changes still to come in agile or have we kind of hit the crest? And either one. Um, well, uh, sure, I'll kick off. So my, my thoughts are the, the beauty of agile is that it's very simple, right? Um, I think the simplicity has helped it gr uh, grow in what, this has been 20, 20 years or so since yeah, it was the manifesto. So I think the simplicity um, is, is very powerful. Um, I think it, Agile mimics the way that as humans we solve problems. Mm. Um, what kind of innovations might be coming? Well, DevOps obviously is, you know, the, what do you call it, the successor. So DevOps came out of Agile. I think that was a pivotal uh, innovation. Um, and outside of that, I'd say that I think some of the innovations will be maybe at the portfolio planning level. Mm. Um, I mean, at the agile, at the team level, 
Um, we all kind of know how that works. But I think um, portfolio planning systems need to kind of catch up with the way that companies are going to work with Agile so that we can scale it better. Um, I think that might be where the innovations are. Also, the whiteboards, the digital whiteboards. Um, thank God we got our foot in the door on those before the pandemic, because I think that was very innovative to help us all go um, virtual in uh, 2020. Yes, although I think Rick is a big fan of sticky notes and would hate to see those go away. I'm, I, I love sticky notes too. They're tactile, you can touch them, they fall off the board, you put them back yes. up. You know. It makes it very easy to move them around. <laughs> How about you, James? Do you think there's any major innovations? Well, in as much as uh, Agile's about continuous improvement, there's a lot of innovation yet to come. And uh, one of the things that I see uh, when I go read blogs from people are complaints from the technical side is that uh, somebody goes off to Scrum Master School <laughs> and learns about sprinting, and all of a sudden the, the development team, the engineers are thinking, I'm going to be micromanaged now. What are all these meetings I've got to go to? And why, am I, why is someone micromanaging me? And why aren't I allowed to think about design anymore? And why do I have to hurry up and do something? And so one of the big problems, I think, is that engineering doesn't get brought along. Um, two engineers in the room? Two developers? Three? Okay. Uh, where are they? Uh, this, I've spoken at some scum, scum conferences, too, and wondered, where are the developers? And why aren't they here? Okay. So... I don't think we're doing enough to bring them along. And something like DevOps, when you see DevOps, it's a natural outcome of extreme programming, the mm. automation of trying to make it so that you make a change and everything pops out the other end. And so, yeah, I wasn't, when I saw the word DevOps, it's like, what's that? It's like, oh, it's the automation of the build. Oh, yeah, okay. They were doing that in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then some days we call it systems engineering. And yeah. Exactly. It's great. I think that we've got a lot to do in the implementation. And uh, then, of course, continuous improvement. We're going to keep finding things to improve. Humans are about that. Um, if we weren't problem solvers, we'd still be standing around waiting for lightning to strike yeah. and light a fire for us. But we are problem solvers. Exactly. We tamed fire. We got fire, and then we had fire protection, right? So. Exactly. Yeah, so, so in, in terms of... Um, one of the things that I often do when I present is I, I go through all the sort of different sort of um, methodologies that we've had all the way from waterfall all the way through. And then I put a big word cloud up and, and sort of highlight to everyone that the word security is missing completely from everything that's happened before. So where do you see, and I'll ask you both the same question, where, where do you see security fitting with Agile um, as, as we move into 2023, 2024, is it, is it still lagging or, or are we starting to see a lot more embedding of security? Well, I don't know anything about security, so I'll talk first then. Um, the practices in technical practices of extreme programming and such are about getting your code to do what you want it to do and not stuff you don't want it to do. And so in as much as people are gonna use uh, incremental and iterative engineering practices to help you to achieve that goal, I think it would be helpful for security. I would maybe ask you guys, mm -hmm. how many security flaws are because programs don't work the way they're supposed to? There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot? <laughs> There's a lot. Just out of curiosity for the audience here, how many of you have had any kind of secure coding training at all? In your career? So a couple in the back. Um, 
a few over here, right? Uh, I, I work with a lot of universities, and by the way, I'm very grateful that we're on a university campus today. Um, one of the things that I would say to everybody in our space, we need mentors. We need folks who are reaching out, so being here, I think, is very cool for that. Um, but if you were to go to most universities, pull up the course catalog, and look for secure coding classes, you may find a couple, but the common denominator for almost all of them is that they are only mandatory for dedicated cybersecurity majors. And I think that's a real problem, because anybody who is doing programming these days needs to know how to do that, and particularly because most of the sources, uh, stuff is being done open source. So things are shared, all of that. Um, there's only one university I'm aware of right now that's fully integrated it into all of their software classes and, and things of that nature. Um, so what, what that means is the average developer who's come out of that space wants to write secure code. I've never met one that says, yes, I would love to be insecure. Um, but, I mean, that's a whole different problem. But I'm in, a, I'm in a hurry, let's be insecure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> makes, it, makes it super easy. But they just don't know, and the flaw in the logic, right, we, we talk about Agile and the transformations there. If you go and put a defect or something like that into a JIRA ticket, stick it in a backlog, the chances are good that a developer will know what to do with something like that. They'll have an idea of how to fix it, they'll know where to go to get information. If we do the same thing with security vulnerabilities, they often go, I, I have no idea what to do. My code compiled fine, it worked fine, it passed all the unit tests, what's making it insecure? And so that challenge becomes how do I fix that, right? And that's where the security teams get involved and those kinds of things. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of that as well, Colin. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it varies an awful lot, but it, it's, it's more getting it in, in ground. I, I think the starting point, and you may even hit on it, um, is, is looking at things like threat modeling and, and getting that Absolutely. working effectively in, in the sort of development team. So it's part of the practice. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. Um, a, few of, a decade ago, security was something we did, some pen testing kind of after the yeah. fact, and then we would capture that and go back and make, make adjustments. But um, I've had the, the privilege of working for a financial institution for 16 and a half years. Uh, heavily regulated by, in this case, the OCC, a government government body, and the audit and compliance was such that uh, 10 years ago, we had, my team and I, and the bank had to focus on security, but not after the fact. So um, I feel like that regulation kind of pushed my organization a little forward in being conscious of security. Um, it really has to start at the beginning of the SDLC, right? Security is not an after-the-fact thing. Um, it starts in, in Agile, your definition of ready, right? It's part of your definition of done. Um, it's everyone's job yep. for security. It's the engineers, it's the QA people, um, it's even the, the business analyst. Um, we have some really great automation tools now that can help us. You know, if you're, in, if you're using Git, you can scan your code for vulnerabilities. There's... Um, code scanning plugins that you can have now that will code scan so you can catch security early. Yes. Um, but really it's it's everyone's job. Um, it starts at the beginning of the SDLC and th th there was a conversation uh, having just a, a minute ago and it and it resonated with me. You hear DevOps and then you hear DevSecOps. Like I don't think you need the SEC in there, the, the security. I think DevOps should be end-to-end -end security ingrained in the entire uh, SDLC. Yes. Now, now, we are in Florida, so we have to be a little bit careful talking about the SEC. <laughs> so um, what's an example of uh, 
something that one of these scanners might find is a security vulnerability. Me as a somebody who doesn't know anything about it, it's like it's scanning for something. What's it looking for? So um, there's a list of the top ten uh, vulnerabilities. It's, I think it's called OWASP, mm -hmm. O W A S P, perhaps. Yes. Um, and that's uh, the top ten. So that's those are the givens, right? Um, it would be um, SQL injection, like. You, you, this field is numeric, and that's all it's supposed to take is a number, but somebody can type in letters in there. That shouldn't happen. Um, the field should take no more than six characters, but for some reason it takes, you know, 350 characters, so you can put a lot of malicious code in there and try to probe and so forth. So those kind of things uh, we can catch automatically now with our scanning software. Uh, SQL enter, you know, people who write SQL, the SQL code in the software, um, we can scan that now and find uh, vulnerabilities, like things that shouldn't, you know, be allowed to do. So, those are kind of the, you know, um, cross-site scripting. I know I'm getting a little techy here, and I don't mean to, but, um, you know, it's it's all out there. So you can you can um, really it's a start is just implementing the software for code scanning, and then using that, getting the feedback, deciding what you're going to take as that's valuable, and ignoring what might be noise. So, it's it's gotten simpler now. Yeah, so we, we, we have a, a number of different capabilities that we have, um, and it starts with code scanning. But, but we also have, um, which I think is, 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 is starting to be emerge as a much more accessible um, means, is, is called IAST, which is Interactive Application Security Testing. So what you actually do with this is you put it in on an application server as a monitor, and so when you're maybe doing your testing functions, so maybe you've got testers that are doing their normal sort of test activities, this is looking for vulnerabilities automatically in the background yeah. and then reporting on it. And, and it is those sorts of vulnerabilities where, where someone is maliciously, or not maliciously, but they, that someone maliciously could um, access something that they shouldn't. Yeah. Um, Have you ever heard of uh, mutation testing? Mutation testing? Yeah where there's a robot that will go and it'll run your tests and then change something in your code and see if your tests catch it. Mm. Okay. And, and if, you, if, if you can have a change that actually survives a compiler and, survive, and is caught by the tests, then you know, there's a dead mutant. But sometimes a mutant will live. Mm -hmm. And you know, if someone's looking for holes in testing and unknown behaviors of code, it seems like it might be. Yeah. I, interesting. Like next generation chaos monkey. Yeah. Chaos monkey. Okay. Yeah. Can, can, let me add something too um, that I want to mention. The peer reviews, code peer reviews. Yeah. Basically, when a software, when a, a developer writes code, before it goes into the production environment, um, another developer will scan the code, review the code. That's called a peer review. Um, you know, another pair of eyes. That's also been very effective in um, beefing up security. Um, and it's also a great training exercise too. Sometimes the junior engineers who are peer reviewing the senior engineer's code can learn something new or they'll find something that the senior engineer missed. So peer reviews is also, I, th I think, a component yeah. of security. Yeah, and this is a great point too because um, we, we recently talked to a gentleman named John Dixon uh, who is a security leader uh, in the space and we were talking about a survey that he had done where they went out in this space and looked at security champions. So that's the idea of like, like having a scrum master or an agile coach in your organization. 
your security champion is that person kind of on your team who is spearheading, hey, we want to do security well, helping to, to be that bridge to the security teams for development organizations. But what was fascinating was he found here in North America in particular that most of the organizations surveyed were doing that organically. So it wasn't really a top-down mandate, but you had people that were passionate about security and wanting to do things better that went in and started championing that on their teams and bringing that out to the forefront. So yeah. this idea of the peer review is, is great, and when you have good security champions, you get by the LGTM problem, right? The looks good to me um, when you're doing that review, so you actually get better eyes on it, better understanding, and, and the whole organization gets healthier as a result. Yeah. And, and can I add one more? Of course. Um, training for your developers, training for your QA people, um, security training. It's really pretty simple right now. Uh, we have uh, online trainings like Udemy. There's probably another uh, vendor out there, but if you've heard of Udemy, it's just great online training. Um, if you train your engineers on what to look for and your QAs of what to look for from a security perspective, they will find things. So training is, is a big one. Yeah. 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 And if you're looking for recommendations, come swing by our booth. We've got a bunch that we can make that are not just ours, I promise. But um, yeah. So, so you mentioned uh, peer reviews, and I'll just go a little extreme from there. Um, one of the practices of extreme programming is pair programming, which 20 years ago seemed like a scary thing. You have to sit with someone and program. You know, I didn't get into programming to sit with people, and I wanted to talk to a computer, not a, another person. And this has evolved into collaborative programming that uh, small teams will work together. And so if peer reviews are, are helpful for security problems, uh, this thing called mob programming would probably yeah. be very helpful, and especially if there's somebody that knows something about security that shows up in the mob every now and then. Um, you're going to have another opportunity to find vulnerabilities before the yes. bad people do. What do we call the bad people? Well, hackers? Uh, I, I don't know. Malicious I, actors? Malicious, <laughs> malicious hackers. Criminals. There are ethical hackers, I will just say that. Right, they're the good guys. But yes, we want the mob beforehand because we don't want the angry mob afterhand. Point. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You want to take questions? All right. So one of the things um, I, we're big on this transformation and information, seeing security, but we believe context is everything, right? So one of the things that we're actively involved in now is this concept of value stream management and visualizing sort of what's going on, optimizing flow through the value stream, and we think there's a ton of connection to agile teams that are building in pipelines and things like that. Um, but it's still kind of a newer space and people are just coming up to it. So I'm curious, from your perspective, gentlemen, do you, do you think value stream is management is real? Is it more hype or, you know, sizzle than sauce, that kind of thing? Um, or is it something that, hey, it has real potential and that we think we can get some value out of? And I, I'll start with you, James. Well, uh, the times I've used it with teams to understand what they do, it can be very eye-opening. Uh, I was working with a company who was very, had a very heavy process. This was in the early 2000s, in the early days of extreme programming, and they wanted some help. And I was there as their coach and kind of a disruptor. And I said, well, would you lay out what you're doing? And they put their process together, and it filled up a whole whiteboard. And I said, well, where's the valuable part done? What's the part that the customer cares about? And then they kind of looked carefully and said, well, this part right here. And the whole board was filled with other stuff. It's like... How do we do more of that and less of this other stuff? It's like, okay, because they've built, they've built themselves a very 
I heard a really clever name for this. It's called uh, process scar tissue. And I didn't think of it, but their, their process is where if there was ever a mistake, they would go and analyze it to some extreme extent, write it into the process so no one would ever have to make that mistake again. They were suffering from severe process scar tissue. Wow. And um, so, That's but good. value stream mapping was super valuable for them to look at themselves and say, oh gosh, we are not emphasizing this part enough. We've put all the safety around us, but we can't get anything done. Hmm. That, yeah. that's amazing. So um, I have a, <clears throat> a question. So value stream management, right? That's our, our topic. Mm -hmm. um, and value stream mapping, right? Um, they, in, in my mind, they kind of, one is a, one is a, a management, a practice area, right? Mm -hmm. Value stream management. Right. And one is a, um, an exercise in, in, in mapping processes from end to end. So that was the one I was mentioning. Like, what was that? We talking about the other one? <laughs> I don't know about the other one. Yeah. So I'll I'll tell you what I um, uh, know of value stream management. So uh, the organization that I work in now, we track um, initiatives, which is the kind of highest level initiative could be uh, something that happens over the course of a couple quarters, maybe a couple years, and then within the initiative we have epics, which we talk about in Agile all the time. And epics have um, backlogs, and then we have uh, stories and sprints. Um, so the tools that we use right now at my organization have give us a picture of from the initiative level down to the story level down to velocity points. Um, and I I think that transparency to me is what I I'm considering value stream management, like being able to look at your value stream, monitor in real time. Mm -hmm. Where might there be bottlenecks? Um, where, and then finding, finding the constraints like um, busting. What is it called? Uh, busting the um, the sing, the constraint busting. There's a better name for it. I can't think of it now. But <laughs> okay, we can um, terms. That what I mean by that <clears throat> is, if you've got ten Scrum teams, but they all rely on a tech ops group or a DevOps group or a QA group um, and you're doing your PI planning, PI planning I think is a big component of, of value stream mapping because that's where you can, you can find the constraints that you need to bust and everything's kind of funneling to one group. Now you can find out, okay, here's a constraint we have and how do we bust the constraint? How do we free up the constraint of this one group that's needed for five different epics? So I think of value stream management in that sense being able to visualize from end to end. Um, and uh, we use JIRA on the back end. We use a portfolio management uh, system on the front end. Um, and they're connected together for real time. So that's kind of like the way I see value stream management working at my organization. I've been at organizations where this didn't work. So um, that's my comments on so, that. So, so the question I'd have on that is that information, who is that most useful for? Oh, great question. So, um, the Epic delivery and the Agile delivery is on Jira. That's our tool. Mm -hmm. um, the portfolio management system is um, for the product group. So, that's their tool. Um, they are able to see and decompose the initiatives and the Epics the way that they want to, right? From a product perspective, customer value perspective. And the integration into JIRA lets our engineers see it the way we need to see 
in order to deliver the value. So um, they, the, the, the great thing about this is that they, the product group purchased that tool. They were inspired to go out and find something. We said just make sure it integrates with our tools. So um, half of it is very valuable to them and not so valuable to engineers because we look at things at kind of more decomposed level. And then we get to do what we do best, which is deliver agile with the tools and te techniques we have. So it's, it's really worked out, right? It wasn't an IT decision to implement the portfolio management tool. It was the products group, so there's ownership around that. Right, driven out of necessity. So yeah. I mean, we, we talk about value stream management being kind of a superset of the mapping. Mm -hmm. Most of us are familiar with doing the mapping exercises. We want to know where we get value from and the basic yeah. pieces that contribute to it. Value stream management really is, is just what you said for us. It's about seeing the flow in totality. Yeah. So um, we often think that we understand where the bottlenecks in our process really are. But what value stream management is doing is telling us exactly. And when we can leverage that against things like story points yeah. or work items going in and out or whether, you know, people, whether they're overloaded, right? So looking at the traditional swim lane view and realizing that, you know, John over there has 13 things on his plate and Steve is sitting twiddling his thumbs because nothing's currently assigned to him, right? right? So those kinds of things, basically yeah. answering the question, does your process show you where it needs to be optimized? And the beautiful thing about that is, is if you know the theory of constraints and have worked with that before, you know that as soon as you eliminate a constraint, you now have another one somewhere else, right? And so being able to see the impact of opening up flow in one area and yeah. now where's the next bottleneck, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so, the, great, yeah. Uh, the great book, by the way, The yeah, Goal. Very good book. The Theory of Constraints. Yes, the Theory of Constraints. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think they busted that one. Yeah, I feel like they redid that book yeah. uh, as the Phoenix Project, yes, the which which is a great book uh, that I recommend. But it's Phoenix kind of project, the Unicorn Project, its sequel, and by the way, uh, Gene's got another one coming out uh, very soon, um, a third version of that. So if you haven't seen them, uh, these are great books for helping people understand how these things come together. Do they still take that walk through the mountains with the kid that's really slow? <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember that one. It's funny reading those books. You 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 actually identify every character in it if you've worked in IT for a yes. while. <laughs> every organization has a Brent. So. Yeah, a persona, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And if you don't know who Brent is in your organization, it's probably you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just just I'm I'm sort of curious about specifically yourself. Like you mentioned that you you work in a large organization. So I, I can imagine that you have teams that do Agile really well and ones that don't do it so well, um, or maybe are starting. So what, what, are some of the, what are some of the ways that you can collaborate to bring all the teams up to the same sort of maturity? So I have, yeah, I have two large experiences with Agile transformation. Um, um, first one was uh, Agile transformation from the from the bottom up, right? Kind of a grassroots, uh, hey, there's this new thing called Agile, let's let's try it. Uh, I got my engineering team to do it. it, it was working. We expanded a little bit, we got attention from the CIO, everyone started saying, hey, this is kind of interesting. Uh, so that's a bottom up approach, if, if you will, to Agile transformation. And then the uh, opposite end is a top down approach, right? Where 
a C-level executives or a number of C-level executives say, we want to move into Agile, uh, we want to kick off an Agile transformation, that's a top-down. Um, both of those are very different experiences. Um, each one has uh, benefits um, and drawbacks. So that's kind of like the, the two sides, if you will, and you know, if that's, that's, that's really kind of the framework I can uh, mention here on bottom-up agile transformation, benefits and challenges, top-down benefits and challenges. So I think that leads into this, and we'll take we'll do one more question up here, and then I want to open it up to the audience. So if you guys have questions, uh, get them ready. We'll come in just a sec. But out of curiosity, right, for folks that are trying to do agile transformations or trying to take it to the next level, um, what are some of the big stumbling blocks, mistakes to avoid, things that you've seen kind of on your journey um, that inhibit success, right? What do people want to essentially not do in here? Well, nobody wants to change. <laughs> they, they say they do, right? Until it's well, on the front door. Yeah. So in the 1999, 2000, when we were enthusiasts for extreme programming, which, by the way, I still am, which is a good sign that it was actually a valuable thing to do because I keep doing it because it's fun and helps me be productive. But we were excited about that. It took us a while to convince ourselves and then we thought, well, we'll just show people and they'll want to do it. And guess what? They don't want to do anything. They don't want to change. People don't want to change. Um, now, started to change our technique for helping people change, which was, what problems are you having? And are you interested in solving those problems? And if you can describe a short logic chain to a solution to a problem, someone might say, it sounds crazy, but I'll try it. Right? And so... Uh, one of the things, I forget what the question is now, okay? Which happens to me all the time, of course. Okay. But uh, So one of the challenges is getting people to change. Now, don't send your managers off to Scrum Master School and have them come back and start expecting everybody to know to, how to deliver something in two weeks. You've got to help the engineers to understand what iterative and incremental engineering is. And we learned this in our first extreme programming immersion one. We had 60 people in a room and we started with planning. And everybody was so plan uh, confused about planning. I mean, how can we possibly deliver this tiny little thing? No, I'm too, uh, there's, it's not possible. We gotta do all this design work and everything. The next time we did an immersion, we started with test-driven development. We got people to do some small, short cycle creation of functionality. And then we introduced planning on the third day, and they said, great, no problem. They had an idea, a vision of what iterative and incremental engineering was, and then iterative and incremental planning was no problem. Reverse that, and you get all kinds of stress and strain. Turn it around, and it goes easy. Well, in my experience. Yeah, I, I would say if, if you're in a grassroots, kind of bottom-up agile transformation where you're spinning up some agile teams, and you're training the engineering group. Um, you can be you can be successful, right? You can spin up a, a team or two. Um, I had preferred to use the word business agility when speaking with people outside of IT, because mm. agile sometimes comes with connotations like, "Oh, I've heard of that," or "Somebody told me about that." I'm not interested in that. So, 
in speaking outside of IT, the, the term business agility is has was very helpful. Um, some of the pitfalls to look out for, you will get to a certain point where you're delivering an agile and you're having successes. Um, you need to be an evangelist and promote the outcomes and the positives, you know, what, what, what those may be. Maybe you delivered something faster, maybe the, the defect rate was down, um, and you need to talk about how you did that. So you need to be an evangelist. Um, at a certain point, um, on the bottom-up transformation, you will hit a ceiling if you don't have executive sponsorship. Um, so in other words, if you don't have a C-level sponsoring you, and let me change the word from sponsorship, because sponsorship is a passive word, right? Uh, you need a godfather, right, in the sense of the movie, <laughs> the godfather, um, or a godmother. We're dating ourselves again. Yeah. <laughs> so at a certain point, bottom-up transformation, there will be a ceiling. That's when you need an executive godfather, an executive godmother, who will clear the path for you, because what you'll find is if you have a project management office in your organization and they're not agile-minded, that's going to be a difficult. That's going to be difficult to get them on board, right? Um, so that's that's the bottom. Kind of my my thoughts on some of the challenges bottom up. Excellent. We, before agile, there was uh, the company I worked for, a big company uh, out of Boston called Teradyne. Uh, Bob Martin, you might know that name. He and I worked together at the Chicago office. And um, the company set off on a, a mission to learn TQM, and it was from the CEO down. And all of us engineers in the trenches, of course, laughed at it, but they invested enough all the way through the organization and gave us time to learn it so that it actually did transform the company. Now, I don't, I don't know if I see this model happening because I see layers getting trained and not the whole company getting trained. And so not everybody's brought along with, you know, what they need to do different. And, uh, you know, the, the general manager of our division came to us and said, okay, we need to know what you're going to be able to do and measure every week. It's like, our cycle time is nine months. We can't measure everything, anything every week. And they said, well, we don't know what you software engineers are doing anyway, so we'll leave you alone. Now, too bad. <laughs> Metrics. That we weren't yeah. smart, that we didn't understand iterative and incremental engineering we would have been in that program and would have changed the company even more. But we were ignorant. The industry was ignorant at that time. Yeah. And I'll just say one final thing. I'm kind of amazed at the insight in it of two amazing engineers, Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham, to actually look at their work and self-reflect enough to actually come up with something like these short cycles of test-driven development and uh, continuous, uh, continuous integration in the practices which make agility and technical excellence possible. Yeah. It takes a lot. Yeah, it just, you reminded me of something in saying that too, in, in the measurement piece and, and the metrics, right? There's a, a good pastor friend of mine that likes to say, people don't do what you expect, they do what you inspect. They do what you inspect. Yeah, so. um, what people are measured on, it drives behavior, right? Yeah, exactly. So you have to be very careful on what kind of metrics you're using. Yeah. To motivate, yeah. Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot today on useless metrics. They require code coverage, and then everyone's going to go out shopping for a test generator. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, we made our goals, and mm -hmm. now we, we spent several hundred thousand dollars on a test generator that didn't help us, except now our code is covered, so can I have my bonus? Yeah, <laughs> we'll just measure everybody lines of code generated. I'm sure that'll be fine. 
Yeah, one of my uh, agile coach mentors told me, measure outcomes, not outputs. Like lines of code and exactly. all that is just measuring like a output. What we want to do is, you know, obviously measure outcomes. Like exactly. that, that's where the value is. All right, well, I think we got a few minutes left. Um, would love to take some questions from the audience. I think we have a few people with, with microphones coming around. Uh, no, <laughs> we can throw from here. Any, anybody got a question, burning question you want to ask our panel? Don't be shy. This is the everyone wants to be first to be second portion. Well, someone in this cr crowd of thousands should ask a question. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. Okay, well, while they're thinking about that, right? Oh, you got one. Okay, excellent. Hello. Way, you guys know how much a polar bear weighs, right? Just enough to break the ice? The, yeah. That's a technical question. Is there a way to, to talk with uh, uh, Rob and James after the event, briefly? Is there a way to talk per, uh, in person with uh, uh, Rob and James after the event? Of course. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. Be, we'll be right over there. <laughs> All right, thank you. You don't want to share that personal conversation with <laughs> everyone? It's a secret. Secret? Uh, just be broadcast. Technical, out of, out of technical advice is cheap, but other kinds is much more expensive. Yes. Out of curiosity, just how many of you have been asked to do more uh, relative to security or asked to participate in that in any fashion or seeing that? Um, we're seeing trends where people are leveraging security as part of the quality conversation now. And so it's kind of working its way back into better use cases, adversarial use cases, better stories. Uh, the ways that QA testers get involved, all of those kinds of things. Any of that going on in, in anybody's organization? Several in our cast of thousands. <laughs> well, you know, I was happy. Um, I use Ruby on Rails for my website. Yeah, okay. And I was happy to read in some random article that uh, Ruby on Rails, the version I'm using, is protected against uh, SQL injection. It's like, hmm, I don't even know what that is, but I'm glad it's protected. Oh, yeah. I know yeah. what it is now, but I didn't know at the time. Yeah, I, I would question that. <laughs> so, for, should question it? Maybe. Okay, how do I check that on my website? Oh, there's lots of ways you, you could do that. I mean, it, the, the the principal way is probably to do some level of testing off that. But I mean, the I I, I firmly believe that any language could be made vulnerable. You know, um, it, having seen so much of different sorts of. So, if I put some select query into my input fields and go run around and see and if any of those respond, then I know I've got a problem, right? You could. Yeah, you could. I mean, in the early days, what you were really trying to do was just flush out the error message that showed you what the query looked like mm -hmm. so you could reverse engineer it and then try to inject malicious data into that query to see what would happen. So those were the earliest days of injection. So so for me, right, years ago, and, and those of us who use forms the way we're supposed to and we do what we're supposed to, how many of you would have ever thought to, when you're logging into a site and you put your username in and then decide to put negative one as a password? Negative one? Anybody ever thought of that one, right? Or, or one equals one, right, stuff like that? Well, turns out in a lot of those early days, all it was looking for was, is the statement true? 
So if you had a username, it was lining it up against a table in a database somewhere and said, okay, well, the username is true, so therefore, if the password field is also true, then, oh, everything must be fine, I'm gonna get, give access. So if you were to put things like one equals one in, well, that's a true statement. Combine that with the username, now all of a sudden, we have malformed it's, access. There's the classic, yeah. there's a classic one with the guy who put that on his number plate. Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, had uh, would dash or one equals one on his number plate. You can mess with. I can imagine numbers. a test for that. Oh, there's guys that would put QR codes on things to mess with toll cameras, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, I do want to say really quickly though, how many of you guys have parents? Oh, we have a question. We might have. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, you all have parents. I meant. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, this is what happens when you're live. <laughs> Go for it. Hi. Hello. Um, hi, my name is Robin. I'm from Ryder. Um, hi, actually, you were just talking about what my question was, but I want to ask it anyway. Sure. Do you see a future where offensive security should be included in our agile teams, maybe as a part of our QA teams? Absolutely. Um, in fact, if if you were to, to ask me where I think application security as, a, as an industry is going, that idea of learning from where we're attacked and threat intelligence, um, is very important to that, right, coming in. So offensive security, um, some people call it ethical hacking, right? It's the idea, when you mentioned penetration testing before, this idea of, well, we're going to exercise things against our applications in an adversarial manner to find out if they're vulnerable before somebody else does. So there are whole teams, um, IBM X-Force is a good example of this, where they'll go out and they'll attack applications and then come back and tell you, hey, this is where you might be vulnerable and maybe you wanna do something about that. Um, we used to see a lot of movies around this, like in the 80s as well, where people like Hudson Hawk, right, would go into a museum and he'd try to steal an artifact and come back and give it to him and say, you're not as safe as you think you are. Think that same mentality with applications. So we are seeing that. Um, organizations have had those teams for a really long time, but it hasn't folded over into the development process. And when Colin mentioned developer-friendly threat modeling before, we think that's a great place where that kind of thing can interject well. So absolutely, I think that's moving in that direction. Yeah, so. and, and, and if I can just add, um, when your teams are writing their user stories, there's typically a definition of ready for each user story, which is some criteria that says this user story is ready for us to story point and begin working on. In your definition of ready, have a um, have something regarding security, right? Just some general questions to make the team ask themselves, are we considering security? Do we need to? Uh, is QA gonna test for these security um, vulnerabilities as part of your definition of ready? So that's one way to just get the teams thinking about it. And, and, it, and it moves even beyond security. Uh, you know, in this day and age, it also comes down to people's privacy and data and, and the use of that as well. So I think there's, there's, you know, there's opportunities not just to focus in on one aspect of that, but also take that across compliance and, and various other things that, that come with that. Yeah, and so to the, the question I was going to ask before, because we all have parents, but how many of you are parents? Uh, maybe you have teenagers, older kids, right? Okay, so... Um, I have a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old, right? And so I'm very passionate about this thing. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm struggling, right? Um, data privacy, right? Our kids have grown up in a world that has taught them it's fine to trade your data for convenience and trade that privacy for convenience. And so now we're seeing all kinds of regulations happening in the space. We're all familiar with GDPR. 
Um, I live in California, so we get the CCPA out there, and we decided that that wasn't good enough, so we added in the CRPA this year, so the Consumer Right of Private Action. So I like to tell people if we do a good job with the CCPA and the CRPA, we avoid the CRAP. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> um, but the point being some of those acronyms, but that's okay. Yeah, you got that one, right? The point here, data privacy is driving change in all this space. So for us even doing agile transformations, looking how teams work, keep that intersection in mind because what's happening is the regulations themselves are getting much more specific in what they do. Best example of this in my world is New York State Department of Financial Services, and we'll kind of wrap with this. Um, they have a regulation called uh, CR, NYDFS CR500, which deals with all the cyber stuff. But just a couple of years ago, and you and I used to talk about this quite a bit, right? It just contained one line that said you needed to have a robust application security program. Well, good luck defining what robust meant, right? It was left as an exercise to the reader. If you go today, you'll see a bullet list of about 18 or 19 things that are now defining what it means to have a robust program that tendency is now spilling over into executive orders, into software bill of materials, into national cyber defense, all of that kind of stuff. And it will affect everything that we do. So this idea of having rigidity and, and process and visualization is, is really, really important to where we're going. So, and your kids will thank you for it. So, any last thoughts? Because um, I know we, we need to wrap this up. No, I think I think I'm good. Um, I I agree with you. Um, oh, let me just say this: the the, the regulators, right? They yes. say what was that one-liner that you said yeah, that they CCPA, CRPA, avoid the but there was a one-liner that said you have to have a robust robust uh, application application. Program. I'll tell you how that works because I because I work for worked for a public bank. The the regulators tell you that, then they audit you, and it's a soft audit. They're not going to tell you you're missing anything, but they're going to learn what you did. They're going to write it down, and they're going to make that a standard for the next bank, financial institution that they audit, um, and then they pick stuff up along the way, and that's how they build this out. That's how they build it out from the one-liner to now, twenty-five things you yeah, have to do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is there any process scar tissue building up? Um, I, I would I would say that it's a challenge because my general my general number is. Compliance and audit puts a 30% overhead on everything you do. So you used to be able to code and get things out the door, and now you have compliance and audit, and it's a 30% overhead on cost and time. So uh, I don't know if you call that scar tissue, but it's... Well, I wonder, if anything, if any of the uh, things that you're looking for become obsolete due to t changes in technology, or you know, maybe some things could change, but you're still looking... The problem, if the company I talked about is... They never changed it, and they left all the processes there, and it grew and grew and grew. Yeah. So 30% today, but 90% when I saw it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll go back to the OWASP top 10, which is the top 10 security issues that everyone deals with. That gets updated every year or so, and the regulators just say, refer to that. So, yeah, it does update, but... <laughs> yep, well, um, I think we're... We're close on time, yeah, aren't we? Are. So, so I'd like to just thank David and, and James for Absolutely. being part of this with us. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure. Very thank exciting. you, Colin and Rob. Yeah, yep, very much. And thank you'll you. be able to get this podcast uh, shortly. If you're listening to it later, thank you very much. Appscan.buzzsprout.com or on your favorite podcast platform.
Right. Thanks Thank very you. much for having us. Thank you. Rick.